Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. All right, welcome back to the Church and Culture Podcast. Uh, I'm Alexis, and I will be joined each week by Dr. James Emery White, and we're going to be diving into the latest headlines and cultural trends of contemporary society. And then Dr. White, or Jim, as you're going to hear me refer to him, is going to give some insight into how the Christian church might think about these issues, how we can respond strategically. Um, If you missed our premiere episode, I definitely encourage you to go back and hear about why these conversations matter, um, how Christians might become better students of culture. Um, And in light of that, just before we jump into today's conversation, would you mind, Jim, just reminding our listeners again of what the target on the wall is when it comes to Christian engagement with culture? Well, you know, in one sentence, it's the evangelization and the transformation of culture through the centrality of the local church. That's the heart of it. All right. Okay, well, today's topic probably will not come as a surprise because it is everywhere in the news, and that is the ever-growing conflict between Ukraine and Russia. I want to preface today's conversation by encouraging our listeners to check out the first of two blogs that you wrote this week um, that give a whole lot more information regarding the background, more than we're going to be able to cover today, probably. Um, And so, as always, we're going to link that blog in today's show notes. But in the meantime, let's just start off by talking about what the church has to do with the conflict in Russia and Ukraine, because most of what you will read and kind of the major news outlets really focus on political disagreements, NATO, the um, Putin's claim to be, you know, be involved with the stopping the genocide of ethnic Russians. You got to do some serious digging, I think, to find a religious component to um, what's going on over there. So are we making a bigger deal of the church's role in it than it really has, or are we wise to do the digging? Oh, I think that what um, um, most media covering this are missing the headline. This is almost at its root uh, a conflict between two churches and how and 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 a historic conflict and and how that has been wrapped up into even the um, legitimation in Russia's mind for invading Crimea. I mean Ukraine, and so uh, well Crimea as well when they annex that. So. Uh, yes, this is a deeply religious conversation and issue, and that's one of the reasons why I, I was blogging on it and also wanted you know this podcast, because most people don't know what's going on. Okay, so let's kind of work our, start in history and then work our way, work our way forward, because that's essentially what the approach that you're taking with the blog. So in your first blog, what you do is you trace essentially the history of the Orthodox Church, um, how, you know, the church that as Christians we're most familiar with in terms of the first century church in the book of Acts, um, how it grew, expanded, it, you know, expanded beyond the empire, the borders of the Roman Empire. And as it expanded, it faced a lot of questions of orthodoxy and practice and a lot of division eventually crept up. And so the division specifically that we're talking about is the one between the East and the West. Of course, we don't have time to go into full church history, but can you outline for us just yeah. a couple of the main divisions? Yeah, and it yeah. yeah, and it is an important bit of history to understand. And so this is a very cursory under- treatment of it, but it will give you the headlines. When the church began, it was marked by the four classic theological marks, one holy, Catholic, and apostolic, a Catholic being small c, meaning just universal church. And they had five major cities, five major geographic areas, uh, four in the east, places like Antioch and, and Alexandria and Constantinople. And then in the west, you had Rome, and also you had Jerusalem. So those were the five major areas. 
Now, what happened was, was they moved. I mean, this is extremely superficial because they're ups and downs, but essentially they were unified for a thousand years. And then uh, what happened was there began to be a growing divide between East and West. Um, and, you know, it's been quipped that the West forgot how to speak Greek and the East forgot how to speak Latin. Well, that was true in terms of language, but it was also true culturally. They really separated from each other and, and grew distant from each other and, and had a less and less understanding and affinity with each other. There was also something happening in the West, in the church in Rome, where there was this growing idea of, uh, of the papacy, the papacy, where, where um, the Roman uh, pope uh, was, there was a growing belief that um, he should be the supreme leader and over all of the other churches. Uh, up to that point in time, each one of those five areas had their own patriarch or pope. And, um, and you know, the one in Constantinople really was considered kind of the lead first among equals uh, and still is to this day within the Orthodox Church. But Rome had some things going for it, namely the Roman Empire <laughs> growing in its, in its power and uh, it being the largest, wealthiest city and, and power on the planet. And so there was a certain amount of, of you know, uh, primacy that went with that. Well, in, uh, there was a great schism in 1054, and that was fueled by both the church in Rome claiming that uh, the Pope there was supreme over all. The East rejected that. Um, there was also a theological controversy called the Filioque controversy, where, uh, and this was also, though, Pope-related, and a lot of people don't know this little aspect, the Filioque controversy was adding a phrase to the Nicene Creed. Uh, that um, later, and without a general council affirming it, Rome just did it. The Pope in Rome did it and gave it his papal um, affirmation, and the East went nuts, saying, uh, A, that was, you're adding to the Nicene Creed that we hold, you know, as sacred. Uh, B, we don't agree with it theologically, what you added. It was a phrase in Latin that means, and the Son, meaning the Holy Spirit emanates from God. And, or flows from God and the Son is what they wanted to add, the Father and the Son. And you also are claiming authority as the patriarch of Rome over all of it to affirm it. So uh, they never got past that. They still haven't gotten past that. And so there was a great schism in 1054. And essentially, the four major areas in the East continued in lockstep. And then the West went its way with Rome. And then, of course, there was another, you know, split in the 16th century with the Protestant Reformation. And so what the Orthodox Church would say, if you were just let them speak, they would say they, they are the one unbroken line that goes all the way back to the very beginning. Rome broke off. And then from that shoot, the Protestant Reformation broke off. And they're the only ones that have been holding steady to the course in terms of uh, true historic Christianity. What do you think? How, how, <laughs> how should we think about that? I, I feel well, like I mean, relevant. if you're if you're a Protestant Christian like I am, you you beg to differ with aspects of both Catholicism and Orthodox Church. Um, there's a lot of differentiations. One is is that even though they may have rejected the Pope, they they hold to an, an apostolic succession that goes beyond the apostles of the New Testament. Protestants disagree with that. They put tradition over Scripture. Um, 
And then, in fact, they called sola scriptura the great sin of the Reformation, whereas Protestants would hold to scripture being over everything. Um, I, you know, and there's other things I could detail if we were doing a theological treatise on this, but I will say that, I, um, you know, I'm in no way, shape, or form am I, you know, prepared to say they're not Christians or stand within the Christian stream. There's just differences between all three. And um, I, I tend to say that, you know, there's, there's a core of, of historic Christian orthodoxy at the center of the Orthodox Church, just like there's a core of orthodoxy at the center of Catholicism. But there are some serious disagreements, some serious, you know, theological things that we would need to tease out. But um, so I'll leave it at that. Sure. Okay. Well, so that was a great kind of background in terms of the East-West split, but both the Russian and Ukraine churches are part of the East side of that. So what's the cause of the split there? Yeah, this is where it gets interesting and, and we're getting at the roots of what's happening right now with Russia's invasion. Um, there are uh, all of the different, now there's about 14 different churches with patriarchs making up the Orthodox Church, plus the one in the United States, plus the one that just got added in Ukraine which happened in 2019, where it got the blessing from the patriarch of Constantinople, which angered Russia greatly. The, uh, Russia, and here I'm going to speak kind of monolithically, but it, that includes Putin and the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, they view Crimea, I mean, Ukraine, as part of Russia. They, they don't really recognize it as a separate state. They, they are furious over its independence that happened back in 1991, got even more livid that there, there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church now because the Russian Orthodox Church had claimed prior to that point um, the Ukrainian people. That was part of the Russian Orthodox Church. And um, Putin and the current patriarch of Russia are extremely thick as thieves. Um, you know, he's, he's called Putin God's answer, you know, God's man. And, and it's no secret, uh, and you can, this is, this is not, a, you know, anything, a conspiracy theory, this is, you know, out there in the wider political world, that Russia, Putin has used uh, the Russian Orthodox Church to, uh, for his purposes, to extend his power and control and, and his, his uh, global policies and, and his, his schemes, if you will. And um, so they're, they're kind of in bed together. Now, Another thing that makes Ukraine interesting is that um, that is where uh, Christian Christianity for both Russia and Ukraine began. There was a, a prince that was in Kiev that became a Christian, and that is how Christianity came to the, that Slavic area, to both um, Ukraine and eventually Russia. So both of those areas looked to this Kiev prince back in the 900s as the way their, their faith began, that Christianity came. And so almost all the holy sites, almost all the things that are sacred to both Ukrainian Orthodox and Russian Orthodox are all in Ukraine. And so uh, as has often been, or has been said, essentially Kiev or Ukraine is Russian Orthodox's Jerusalem. I mean, that's their holy land. And the, the um, patriarch of Russia, of the Russian Orthodox Church does not want to lose it, does not want to lose control, does not want to lose that kind of power, that kind of influence, uh, wants to claim it for their own. And also that if they don't, then Russia as a country loses even more control and the, the Church of Russia loses more influence in the region if the Ukrainian Orthodox Church really becomes the Church of Ukraine. So Putin, to tell you how much the religious aspect of this is driving it, 
when he annexed Crimea and took over that part of the Ukraine, he erected a statue of the prince, Prince Vladimir. It was, uh, uh, I'm low on my, my, my uh, Ukrainian language, but in Russian, it was Prince Vladimir. And in Ukrainian, it was Prince Vladimir, uh, the names. So he uh, erected a statue of Prince Vladimir from Kiev, who brought Christianity to that area. He erected a statue outside of the Kremlin when he annexed the Crimean region of Ukraine. That tells you how deep the religious undertones and the driving forces are, that Putin really does see his power, his control tied up with the Orthodox Church and the divide between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Ukrainian Church just is, is like the, was the last straw. Um, we can't have that. In fact, back when they began to move toward independent church, he actually said back then, this could mean bloodshed for you. If there's a Ukrainian Orthodox Church, this could mean bloodshed. So you, you see how deeply this goes into the motivational forces. So you've got Putin's you know, hyper-nationalism wanting to rebuild Russia into what it used to be under the Soviet Union. And you also have the patriarch of the Russian Orthodox Church um, wanting that to happen too, because they're threatened and in you know, competition, if you will, with the Ukrainian church. So this is a, this is a deeply religious driven divide that's going on. And if Russia wins, they will exterminate, they'll end the Ukrainian Orthodox church. If the Ukrainian church uh, is successful, they'll kick Russian Orthodox church out because of its ties with Putin and aggression. And, and um, in fact, the patriarch, this is actually coming up in another blog, the patriarch in, in, uh, in, of Ukraine has gone so far as to call Putin so wicked, he's like, he's acting like the Antichrist. Now, he's not actually saying he's the Antichrist, but he's saying he's, he's like the Antichrist. So this is a deep divide. And um, Orthodox churches pretty much around the world are standing with Ukraine. Obviously, Constantinople is, and others, which is the first among equals. And so, this is not only not only is the world isolating Russia, but within the Orthodox Church, you find the Russian Orthodox Church being isolated as well. So, I spent a lot of time on that. Let me let you follow up. But that's the gist of of how this is being driven on that level. Yeah, I feel like I have several follow up questions. I think this is such a healthy conversation for Western Christians to have in mind, especially here in um, the U.S., where we have such a stark division, I think, sometimes between you no know, church and state that we don't think of these the, the intermingling of, you know, political and spiritual interests in mind here. And so I think that you've really given us a different perspective that's a little bit more complicated and the roots are a little bit deeper than what we might see when we're just, you know, in our um, clicking the daily news headlines. There's a little bit more at stake here. Um, um, do you have just a quick thought on how we should think about that, that intermingling of church and in politics, especially with, with regards to this, if, if we're watching this conflict, what would the takeaway be, or how would you challenge us to think differently about the ramifications of when, of Putin's close association with the patriarch and, and what that means? Yeah. I mean, I, I've been, I've been vocal about being uh, very concerned about uh, Christian nationalism, and and uh, have blogged on that, and and so people can go back and, and see that, and we can even do a future podcast on it if you'd like. But um, I do think that there are some overtones of what Putin is wanting to do with the church there, and that kind of revisionist history that they have, 
and maybe what some are, are pushing forward in terms of Christian nationalism. And so I do think that's a takeaway. Uh, I think another takeaway is to see that, um, is, is to watch what is happening. Like for example, with not just the conflict between the two branches of the Orthodox church that you see there, but what's happening in terms of, of other things uh, in relation, other faiths. For example, when Russia uh, annexed Crimea and um, you know, instituted Russian Orthodox church as the faith, the supreme, the persecution of evangelical Christians was, was just frightening and, and is still an incredible persecution. The irony of that, and again, which is, which is a, another lesson about, you know, no Christian should get in bed with politics at, in this way. The irony is, is that the Russian Orthodox Church had been persecuted by the Soviet Union, uh, the atheist Soviet Union. That was, it was horrible. Um, over 50,000 Orthodox ministers um, were uh, martyred. Over a thousand churches closed. Over sixty seminaries closed. Um, it was and and Putin was part of that. I mean, people sometimes don't know or forget his background. He was a KGB agent who was stationed in East Germany when the wall came down. And some uh, who have tried to psychoanalyze him say he's never gotten over it. He never stopped being KJB. He never really stopped being Soviet Union. And a lot of what he wants to do now is return Russia to Soviet glory. But that's where he was and what he was doing. So he was part of the persecution of the Russian Orthodox Church that he's now trying to co-op and you know, use religious um, kind of uh, language to justify uh, what he's doing in Ukraine. No, Almost like saying the Ukrainian church is, is secular and bad. And this is all in the name of God to stop the spread of sin because you know only we're pure. Is there any reason, do you think, for us to sympathize with the the Russian church's desire for a split not to occur here or not to be exaggerated? I mean, I feel like we're, the Christian church right now, we're, we're, we're exhausted of the division, right? Like we, we desire unity. And I think that that is a good thing, but it seems like in this case, maybe unity isn't the best course of action. How, how should we view that? Well, I, I do think that we should always have our heart break whenever there's disunity within the Christian church in whatever form or stripe it may be. But to say that this is being done in the name of trying to keep uh, Ukraine within the folds of the Russian Orthodox Church in the name of Jesus and love and spirit and grace and community would be incredibly disingenuous when it's being met with vacuum bombs. So it's, 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 it doesn't have any legs. Okay. And um, I, I just want to circle back. I mean, you mentioned that people are saying that Putin may be acting like an antichrist. Is there yeah, I mean, the patriarch of the Ukrainian Orthodox Church said that? Yeah. I mean, should we take that more seriously? I mean, of course, we, we don't ever really know. But I mean, is this something that people are calling well, this World War III? I mean, yeah, it's there's a lot of talk, you know, because this involves Russia and people reading into that Gog and Magog and the kinds of battles that will be taking place at the end of time and trying to read end times stuff into this. Um, there was a well-known, very elderly former television evangelist who recently, who will not be named, but his initials are Pat Robertson, who came out and said essentially that yeah, Putin was even doing God's work. I don't know if anyone who believes that outside of him or anyone who has supported that kind of sentiment. Um, there we are in, I mean, there will be end times events and we don't know if this is among the ones that are among the final end times events or not. Um, but, um, and, you know, is Putin the antichrist or those kinds of things. But I think what he was trying to say 
he is acting so evil in terms of taking over and spreading, you know, the world and causing conflict and wars. He's acting like one. Hmm. This has been so helpful in terms of, you know, thinking about this in a Christian way. But as we move into how to respond to this, I feel like that's what people are wondering. Like, we see what's going on. We're hearing about it. We don't know how to respond. And and it makes me think when you when we where we started with talking about this original division between each East and West, how responsive the Orthodox Church really even might be towards the West, the West Church's, yeah. you know, help or influence. Yeah. The Ukrainian church, Orthodox Church is very open to the West, and um, which is one of the reasons why also Putin has been so incensed, because it was moving toward not only petitioning for membership in the European Economic Union, which it has also done, but also NATO. And so you have, um, uh, you know, there's certainly an affinity and an openness to the West within the Ukrainian people, and even within the Ukrainian Orthodox Church. I mean, the evangelical for example, community was not being persecuted at all in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian church wasn't trying to, you know, force them into anything, unlike what was happening with Russia and Crimea. So I think that our posture at this point should be um, a pray like mad for the people there. Uh, the now at the time of us being recorded, 2 million refugees uh, have fled, mostly women and children who have left everything uh, as you know, our church, Mac, has already been sending money to help establish field hospitals on the border, as well as special disaster relief folk. And we'll continue to keep our eye on that and do all that we can. And I would encourage other churches to do that as well. And um, there's going to be a time where a lot of those people who are refugees are going to need shelter beyond just a refugee camp. Fortunately, a lot of European countries have stepped up. I don't know what we in the States will be able to do or not be able to do, but we need at this point to be praying that this thing ends, that that somehow there's a peaceful resolution for the and that results, you know, unashamedly pray for the freedom of the Ukrainian people and yes, the Ukrainian church of all stripes. And um yeah, yeah, so so you know, at this time we pray and and pray it doesn't escalate and pray that if anything it de-escalates, and when it's all over, you still have um, uh, a free uh, and independent Ukraine and a free and independent Ukrainian Orthodox Church. Mm. This has been such a great conversation. It's been eye-opening for me and several friends, and I think it will be for our listeners too. But unfortunately, we are out of time. The good thing is that I mentioned at the start of the podcast that um, Jim has already written one blog about this, which I um, recommend that you check out. And then coming on Monday will be the second part um, of that two-part blog. Um, and so um, you'll want to check that out as well. So to access the this episode's show notes or to follow that blog, the Church and Culture blog, or it's the Daily Headline News that is related to this, where you can find some of the um, the important stories that you may not quickly find if you're just doing a quick search um, for the, the daily headline news, um, head over to churchandculture.org. Um, and of course, don't forget to share about this with a friend. And this podcast can be accessed at churchandculture.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And on that note, we hope to see you next week, or we hope you, to have you join us next week. <laughs>